Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Good morning. Glad that you all are here. Um, You know, I think when we look at the passages of Scripture, uh, we see God using very unique people to accomplish his will. Um, Oftentimes, I think we're we're ready for the knight in shining armor that's going to come through and save the day in the story, and I think that's our fairy tale idea of what happens in the Bible, Uh, but that's really not who God intends to use often in in Scripture. And this morning, I want to just highlight a couple of those people that you might think of that are just unordinary um, and and oftentimes very young that God uses to accomplish much. The first person that I think all of you may know very readily is King David. King David, just at the age of 17, we see him on a battlefield with a few river stones, and he kills a giant. Uh, And later, we see King David become King David, uh, and he becomes really the greatest king of all of Judah. And eventually we see from his lineage, it brought forth the Messiah. Next we see, um, this is in no particular order, just to be very clear. I should, maybe I should have done that, but I didn't. Um, next I think we see Joseph. We see him in the last several chapters of Genesis, where Joseph was sold into slavery at 17 years old by his brothers. Eventually, he finds himself in a jail in Egypt where he, tells, he foretells a couple of dreams and interprets them, and the Pharaoh makes him really second in command over all of Egypt. And really, this eventually leads to Moses in Egypt where he frees God's people. Next, and I think one of the most notable is we see Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's just a teenage girl, probably only 15 years old. And God uses her to bring about the greatest gift in the entire universe, which is Jesus. Jeremiah uh, was just a young prophet that God used really to to foretell a lot about the Messiah hundreds of years before he came. But Jeremiah, and and you can read this early in the first several uh, verses of Jeremiah for chapter 1, where Jeremiah is basically telling God, like, I'm too young for this. I can't do this. And God says, that is not, that should be of no concern to you for my plans. And and Jeremiah actually talked a lot about, um, prophesied a lot about the exile of Israel into the land of Babylon. This is actually, we studied Daniel pretty extensively uh, in our youth the last several months. And Daniel, uh, we see, lived in the time that Jeremiah prophesied about. Um, And he was just a young kid. Him and his friends were just young little boys, basically. They were 14, 15, 16 years old. And we see them enter into the the land of Babylon, and they are set to be uh, servants in the king's house. And that's what their job was. Eventually, by Daniel interpreting some dreams, he becomes chief prefect over all of Babylon, about the time he's about 20 or 25 years old. Um, God used a really young guy to do that. And eventually, if you, and I would encourage you to go read Daniel chapter 4. It's probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture where we see God's redemptive act happening to the king uh, where he is brought very low and then is redeemed by God. And that happens because Daniel cared very, very much 
and loved the king very, very much and invested time and effort into the king. And eventually we see, we can kind of think that King Nebuchadnezzar really turned to the true and living God. Lastly, we're brought here to Timothy. Timothy, a man, he's probably in his 20s when, or excuse me, he's probably in his teens when Paul meets him. Uh, And then eventually Paul disciples him, carries him through life, and eventually we're met here now in the book of Timothy, where he's probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s. We don't really know too much more about Timothy beyond what Paul writes about him. He didn't prophesy. We don't know that he did any miracles necessarily, but we do know that he was a faithful servant of God that cared very much about his word and the truth of it. And really, he's going to use Timothy, uh, well, Paul through the means of Timothy, to, to set down the structure of his church, what he really wants the church to look like. But God has this unique pattern of using really seemingly ill-equipped people to accomplish what he wants. A notable, uh, one more, just to, to kind of throw that out there. Jesus came as a baby, just to put that out there, okay? He did not come and just appear as a, as a full-grown man. No, he used a weak baby to come and save the world right, who eventually became a man and died as a lamb. But over the last several chapters of 1 Timothy, we've seen really what Paul is laying down is what, what God wants for the church. And he's been telling Timothy that there's a doctrine, a behavior, and a structure that God wants in his church and is required by God in his church. Firstly, the doctrine we see in, in just the first chapter, and I would encourage you to flip back to First, to first Timothy chapter 1 and just follow along because I think it's going to be really helpful in, in, in understanding really the, what Paul is telling Timothy to do and instructing him to do. Firstly, he lays down this doctrine, uh, and he says, and we can find this in First Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. It says this, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay, So here he doesn't tell us what the right doctrine is. He's saying, I've told you what it was. Now don't let anybody teach anything different. Okay, So he's saying that there is a correct doctrine, a correct way of carrying out the doctrine of the church. Now Timothy had been handed a certain amount of authority from Paul, from God, really, to, to, to speak over the Ephesian church and to employ sound God-given apostolic doctrine. There was a correct doctrine, and there is a correct doctrine today. God very much cares about that doctrine. Because, friends, if we mess up that, then we're going to mess up everything else, right? But then in verse 4, Paul really describes this false teaching in a little bit more detail. It says, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. People were turning potentially the, the, the truth of God's word into fable, saying that, you know, anything really goes, anything could have happened, and mixing the truth of God's word with paganism, which we still see hints of that even today. And then in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, Paul says this, he said, certain persons, by swerving from these, and that what he's saying by swerving from these is, if you look in verse 5, he says, the love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. People swerving from those things have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He's basically saying these people wanted to teach the word yet had no idea what it said or what it meant. And they made confident assertions about nothing, about complete lies. He's saying that's not acceptable or appropriate. 
Next, we see that, that Paul really lays down a behavior of the church, and we see that in chapter 2. Um, we, first, we really see a, a behavior of prayer that he's going to lay out for the men of the church, and a behavior of prayer and holiness at the same time. We can see that in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So the, the men of the church should have a, a, an attitude or behavior of prayer for all people. That's not just the people you like, but the people that you don't like also, right? The kings and authorities, the people that, that even you could even consider your enemy. But he also tells them that they need to live holy lives. He says that right there in verse 8. He says, lifting holy hands. This, is, this doesn't mean that you have to lift your hands when you pray. No, it means that when you use your hands, it should be of holy conduct. Should be holy lives that you should be living before God. That before you pray, you should be living holy lives. While you're praying, you should be living holy lives. He says that that's the behavior of the men. There's also then he describes a behavior of adornment. He really he addresses the women here. This is an adornment physically of apparel, but also of the heart. What are you adorning your heart with before God? And we can see this in, in verse nine of chapter two. He says, "Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire." We talked about that pretty extensively, about what the braided hair, don't worry if you're wearing braided hair, you're allowed to keep it in. Um, but what they were doing was they, they were weaving gold and pearls and diamonds and emeralds into their hair, and it became this show of wealth before the church. Not appropriate. This is not the time to show how much money you have. Really, I would say that's not really any time to show how much money you have. I don't think that's appropriate at any level. However, they were doing it to distract from what was really happening in the important worship of the church. This is not the time to adorn yourselves with your wealth. Lastly, Paul lays down a structure of the church, and we see this in cha- starting in chapter 3. He says that there's a leadership for the church that needs to be laid down, because if we have no leadership, then we have chaos. So there must be structure at some level to, to carry God's will and also instruct the saints, right? See this starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We see this this first office is one of eldership. We, and if you follow through, 1 through 7 is really the qualifications for those men. It can't just be anybody. It has to be qualified men that can fill this role. See there, starting in verse 2, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, and it goes on. Right? It has to be a person of good, godly character, that can lead the church. Why? Because they are leading the church and your leaders must be dignified and worthy of being followed. Next we see is deacons. Deacons really are the servants of the church, uh, but we see that it's an office. He says in verse 8, is deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. That there's these two types of leadership that's being laid down, the elders and the deacons. And he's saying that we must have these things because they're important and God cares. God wants these offices to be a part of the, the daily life of the church. Okay, so Paul has instructed all of that all the way through, chap- through the first three chapters. So just to put all of that together for you. Paul's really instructed Timothy, he needs to go in and he needs to stop all of the false teaching, either by making them all be silent or kicking them out. We see that Paul does something very similar to that in chapter 1. Next, he needs to go and instruct the men that they need to start praying and then they need to live holy lives. That means telling the men that they need to pray, but also that they need to stop sinning. 
and that he needs to admonish them to do that. Then he needs to go to all the women, and he needs to tell them that they can't wear their money on their hair anymore, and that they can't wear expensive dresses anymore. Uh, just a note on their dresses. Some, people wearing, some women were wearing dresses that were, that were sometimes 700 denarii. If you're unfamiliar with that currency, one denarii is one day's wage. So just multiply that by 700. So today's money, it'd be like if you make $50,000 and you wear a dress that's 700 denarii, it's like $100,000, okay? Unthinkable. But people were doing that in this, in this culture, telling them they can't wear this costly attire, they can't wear the gold and the pearls in their hair. Then he needs to go in to the elders, he needs to find all the men that are disqualified and kick them out, and then he needs to appoint new ones, and then he needs to go find the deacons and find all the disqualified deacons and kick them out and appoint new ones, and he needs to do all of that while being much younger than everybody's going to talk to. Can you think of any questions that, the, that they might ask of, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? Yeah, that's probably exactly what they were thinking, right? And that's exactly what Paul had in mind when he's writing these verses that we're going to study this morning. That Timothy is up against people that are significantly older than him, potentially, significantly wiser than he is, yet he's going to instruct them what they can and cannot do. And they're not going to like that very much at all. But just a as a note, in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul writes this, really to explain his letter of why he's even writing any of this. He says, says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's saying God cares about what it looks like here in the household of God. And he makes a note that it's his church, not ours which is we are just stewards of what God has. This time is not ours, it's God's. And to use it appropriately is critical. And that really brings us to our verses this morning where Paul's really going to hope to validate all the things that he's just said to Timothy, giving him personal instruction. And friends, we're going to be talking, it's going to seem like I'm just talking to the youth this morning. That's not the case. I am talking to the youth, but I'm also talking to you parents, talking to you grandparents, I'm talking to everybody here, because all of Scripture applies to everyone. So I I, I need you to to really understand that this is not just about the youth. Even though it is a student weekend, I know parents don't click, don't check out, be here with me, all right? So starting in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. See, Timothy, again, is living in this culture that highly values age and wisdom, that the older, the, that the older you are, the more life you've lived, therefore you're wiser, therefore you have really prestige, and that we should honor and praise you. I'm, I'm not, again, elderly people in the church, we love you, we do, okay? Um, that's not what I'm saying. However, that just because you're wise doesn't mean that you're qualified for certain roles, nor just because you're wise does that mean that you're living a holy life at all, Right? And so he's really saying that don't let, he's, this is a twofold thing, where he's telling Timothy, hey, don't let people despise you. And he's telling the Ephesians church, hey, don't despise Timothy. This is a two way road. Because Timothy, he really carried no natural authority. He's only got authority because of who he believes in, and also because Paul is talking. And Paul is saying, I, I'm entrusting this man to you. Now let him set an example for you. But really, he lists here, five things of godly character that he wants Timothy to demonstrate to the Ephesian church. Those are, 
speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. What's, in, what's interesting about these five characteristics of godly character is that they really encapsulate the entire Christian life. Think about it. The first two, speech and conduct, are really domains of activity. They're immediately observable items in people's lives, what they say and what they do. I think we can make snap judgments based off of what people say and what they do, and I think we do it all of the time. And then the last three, love, faith, and purity, really qualify speech and conduct, that these things, if you're going to say something and if you're going to do something, then they need to contain these things, love, faith, and purity, right? But this first one that we come to is speech, speech. And it's really, really this idea of, of just conversations, just having people conversations, people that are in earshot of you, but also from preaching and teaching, that the speech must be an example to the believers. The way that you talk should be an example. And I think there's really some marks of speech that I think Paul's really hoping Timothy is going to demonstrate. The first mark that I think that we should demonstrate in speech is truth. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 25, we see that Paul's really, really shown, he's really said this before. This is not the first time that Paul has had to address the Ephesian church about their speech, and we're going to see a couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Our speech should be marked by truth. You know, Raleigh and Brian have both talked about pretty extensively over the last several weeks about how the church should uphold the truth of God's word in that we are the pillars and buttresses of truth. Remember this? And so that's really what the church is mandated to do by God. We're mandated to uphold the truth of God's word. It's exactly what we should be doing. We do that in part by sharing the truth. You know, we're seeing a world that cares less and less about truth, far less and less about truth. It's not about truth. It's about relative truth, that everybody can have their truth. Friends, that is, just, that is far from the truth, Okay? There is truth. There is objective truth. It's not relative. We've seen that the world becomes less and less, cares less and less about truth, but we also see that the church becomes more and more sympathetic towards sin. That the church is becoming less and less caring of truth. You may be familiar with uh, Hillsong Church in New York. It's really praised as one of the biggest uh, celebrity churches in the United States. In 2020, you may be familiar with the story, their pastor, Carl Lentz, was fired from the church for having an adulterous affair. In March of this year, 2023, Carl Lentz was rehired, or excuse me, hired at a different church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called Transformation Church, as their, in a role focusing on the church's ministry strategy. Friends, I don't think that we want a pastor that was previously involved in abuse, scandal, and affair, being the church ministry strategy guy. I think that's very, very unwise. I'm not saying that there's not room for forgiveness, and there certainly is. However, the church has to be very, very clear about what is and isn't appropriate because God very much cares about what is appropriate and what is not in the household of God. And to stain that with avoiding truth and accepting sin is not appropriate. The church cannot be sympathetic towards sin. It must be critical. It must be, must be hard on sin. 
because when the church is sympathetic towards sin, wolves come in and they destroy. That's exactly what we're seeing all of the time with churches all over the United States. And really what we saw, if, you, if you're familiar with church history, what really happened in Europe over several hundred years after the Reformation, churches became sympathetic towards sin, and eventually the churches just became the world. There was no difference, and so they just fizzled away into nothing. Next, I think that our speech should be marked by edification. And what I mean by edification is really this, that, the, that edification is this word basically that means to build up, means to, to give support to. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul addresses the Ephesian church yet again about their speech. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, you've probably heard your, your mother or your grandmother say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all, right? I know uh, I've heard that several times. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's really something special about speech that builds up the people around us. Friends, if we have nothing good to say, really, I don't think we should say it at all. But really, I think that's a time where we need to analyze our own hearts and figure out what's going on. Why do I have nothing good to say to this person? Rather, why am I only saying something that's tearing them down? You know, my grandfather, we called him Pop, uh, was really one of the best at, at this language of edification, he loved to tell little jokes, but he was always very quick to be sure that we knew, we knew that he was just kidding. He wouldn't even say anything necessarily, you know, like bad to us. He would just like, you know, I'm just kidding, right? You know, I'm just kidding. Um, we're like, yes, we know you're kidding, you know? But he, he wanted his speech to be marked by one that built up people, not tore them down. He was really an encourager at heart and wanted to build up people around him. The next mark... I think our speech should be really be marked by thankfulness. Thankfulness. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4 says this. It says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What I think is so interesting about this verse in Ephesians chapter 5 is that Paul seems to insinuate that the, the crude joking, the filthiness, or the foolish talk that he's talking about is rooted in some kind of dissatisfaction in the Lord. Because the antidote to, to these things is not silence. It's not just being a better person. It's thankfulness in your heart and thankfulness in speech, which I think that's really interesting because that means that when we think about our own filthy talk, our own foolish talk, our own crude joking, is it due to what's happening in our lives or is it due to some kind of dissatisfaction that we have in God at the time? Jesus even talked about really this, this whole idea of speech and its importance and its ability to really evaluate your own heart. It says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. It says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. If you want to see what's inside of a person, inside their heart, just let's sit down and listen to him for a few minutes, and you'll find out exactly what's on, inside, on the inside. Exactly what's happening inside their heart. Because the heart speaks. And if all that's in your heart, or all that's in our heart, is evil, then all that will come out of our mouth is evil. The 
The first godly character, characteristic that we saw was speech, and next we see conduct. This really has to do with the person's way of life, what they're about, the things that they do day to day. You know, this is really a good question I think we should be asking ourselves all the time is, firstly, are we living above reproach? I think that's just that's just quick answer in that one. It's either yes or it's no. The next question that I think is so critical that we have to ask ourselves is, are we living our lives in a manner worthy of being imitated? Are we, are we living our lives in a worthy of being imitated? Do we want the people around us to live like we're living? So, parents, are you living and parenting in such a way that you want your children to be just like you? That you want them to have the same characteristics as you? You know, I, I think sometimes parents will have this idea that they don't want their kids to, to use profane words. I agree, that's a, that they shouldn't. However, if what's being modeled is profanity at home, then the product of that is going to be profanity in the children. They, we, we, are, we are living products of our environment. That's exactly right. We are going to do exactly what we see. And so we're going to live exactly what's modeled in front of us. I think it's, I think it's funny when we, we begin to see traits that, uh, like, I can look at my brother, and I can see certain traits that he has that are exactly like my dad, and it's terrifying, you know? Um, <clears throat> um, it, even, you know, beyond just him looking like my dad, but just that, <laughs> that he literally, there are certain characteristics that mannerisms, things that he does, and I'm like, that's exactly what dad would do. That's weird. Um, now, students that are in the room, you have younger siblings. You do. Do you want your younger sibling to be exactly like you? Do you want them to live a life just like yours? If the answer is yes, wonderful. If it's not, then you need to analyze what is it that you don't want them to emulate. And then the answer to that is not to hide that thing, but to cut it out. That's exactly what the answer is. You know, I tell my, my discipleship group, I have a group of freshman boys, um, everyone's watching. Everyone's watching. We've been so disillusioned into thinking that we live private lives. Friends, we do not live private lives at all. You know, you can go in and shut, you can go into the garage door and you can shut the door behind you. But friends, people are watching. Just that action tells something about you. That's your, that is your conduct. We can't hide from the world. I'm not just talking about the government. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the people that you see at work, at the grocery store. They are watching. People pay attention to your conduct. I don't know why we've been so disillusioned into thinking that we live private lives. We don't at all. Maybe that disillusion comes from, from Satan, that he thinks that we can just live this private life and all is good and you can live however you want and nobody's paying attention. But really, there's no quicker way to prove to someone that your God is not worth following than by the way that you talk and the way that you live. If you have nothing good to say and your life looks like nothing for all week, Really, people are going to know that you're not worth following and neither is the, the God that you proclaim. The next godly characteristic that we see is love. And really, this, this love qualifies our speech and our conduct. It qualifies our speech and our conduct. Gospel writer John, in 1 John 4, 8, says this. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John's saying that really a failure to love is an indication of an unregenerate heart. 
that this person, if they have no love in their heart, then they can't possibly know who God is. Meaning that if we have love, that we know God. Really, the other way around. If we know God, then we, know, then we have love. It's one of the marks of, really, the, the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those. Um, this is one of those things. It basically says, if you have the fruit of the Spirit then you have these things at some level. Some shine forth a little brighter than the others, but you have it. So to say it's like, I just can't love anybody. Well, friends, if you know God, then you certainly can, and you certainly should at the same time. You know, Paul addresses just this idea of love in our speech and really love just in general, even when talking about false teachers. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, right? This, this, that we're driven to do this out of love. He's not telling Timothy to just kick out all of these people and then just forget about them because they're too far gone. Oh, no, that is not what he's saying. He says our, our, the, the aim of our charge is love, that we can go to these people, correct their false teaching, love them, and welcome them into the grace of God. Really, that's, that's, why we're, that's why we're so hard on false teaching because how much do we have to hate somebody to not tell them the truth of what God's word says? We have, to be, we have to be firm on what the truth of scripture is. It does not change. God does not change. His word does not change. Therefore, what we teach should not change. But I think it's important that we note that love is not kindness. I think that we've really mixed these things up. Love is not kindness. Kindness, really, it benefits the receiving party, certainly. To be kind to someone benefits that person. But it isn't objectively good for that person, right? Love really benefits the receiving party and is objectively good for that person, if love is genuine, that is. So I'll put it this way. Parents, would it be loving to let your children just do whatever they want whenever they want? No, that would not be loving. Certainly not, right? They could perceive that as kindness, but you're not loving them. You're teaching them to, to the world doesn't care what they do, and they can do it whenever they want, right? Now, broader church believers, is it loving to accept people's sin and give them a false assurance of their salvation? No, it is not loving. That is so far from loving. What's loving Though they might perceive it as being hurtful or hateful, what's loving is that we share the truth of God's word, that they are a sinner that is in great need of a savior. That is the truth of God's word. You know, I think that also people mistakenly think that loving someone means letting them live their best life now. You may be familiar with that book title. Vody Bauckham, a pastor, theologian, had this to say about really that book and, and lit people living their best life now. He says, the only way you have your best life now is if you're going to hell when you die. Friends, if we want to take heaven down to earth and we want to enjoy the riches of heaven and we want to have everything that we can have, the blessing, you know, we just want to have the, the good wealth and the good health and, and the happiness, and we want to have it all right now, and we just want to get rid of all that stuff that God has to offer about Jesus, and we just, we just want all the good stuff. Friends, we don't know God at that point, and if you want to live your best life now here, then that means that you're not going to know him later. Faith 
Moving on, and there's our fourth characteristic of godly character. It's the, second, it's, the, it's the next qualifier of our speech and our conduct. But how does a person really show faith? And I think this is, this is really a two-way road here. Um, faith really is this idea of trust or trustworthiness. And so Timothy is really a person that is trustworthy. He can be trusted with much. Think about what Paul has done. Paul has entrusted him with the gospel. He's entrusted him with a church that he cares a lot about. He has entrusted him with correct doctrine and to carry out what God wants for the church. That's a lot of trust. And Paul says, I trust you, man. I know you can do this. But also, Timothy has an immense trust in the Lord. Every morning when Timothy's feet hit the floor, he's resolved to trust God. Because if, we're, if we can't trust God in things, how in the world could people ever trust us with something, right? Really, Timothy's resolved to trust God. So young people, some of you are graduating or just did graduate, are you resolved to trust God with your future? Where you're supposed to go to college, maybe what job you're supposed to do, what trade you're supposed to enter, are you trusting God that he knows what you are to do? Brothers and sisters, Believers, parents, grandparents, do you trust that God will provide for your family in hardship and need? Are you there? Are you there to trust God when things get hard and when things get ugly? Do you continue to trust God even when it's not fun, even when it seems like you can do it on your own? Do you continue to trust God? Even when things are good, do we trust God? Last is, last characteristic that Paul wants Timothy to show is purity. It's really the third qualifier of his speech and conduct. You know, this could be uh, purity in his speech and conduct, obviously. Uh, It's very likely a piece of the explanation that he wants him to have exemplary speech and exemplary conduct, one that is pure, unstained, above reproach even. Uh, And it kind of looks like maintaining a singular character, and we've talked about this with the students a lot because I think it's really easy to go throughout the week, six days, and live like a heathen and come to church and act like a saint. Friends, that's not following Jesus. Following Jesus happens every day, moment by moment. There isn't a moment that we can sway from that. But I think a much much larger emphasis that Paul's putting on this word purity here is one of sexual purity. You know, unfortunately, we see in the, the larger evangelical world people falling because of sexual sin. I think one of the most notable instances of this happening was back in the 80s. Just to be clear, I wasn't alive for this, so if you were, you can maybe speak to this a little bit better. Um, but Jimmy Swaggart, you may know that name, still alive. Uh, he he ha- runs his own ministry called Jimmy Swaggart Ministries. In 1988, Swaggart was on live TV and to his church confessed his sin and asked for forgiveness from God. He committed adultery, um, and that's um, and so then the Assemblies of God, basically the, the, his denomination, had said, well, you're going to go on leave for three months, and then they decided, you know, I think it would be better for you to go on leave for two years. And so during that two years, Jimmy Swagger founded his own ministry, and then just three years after the initial uh, a, a adulterous affair, he was pulled over for driving on the, wrong side of the, on the wrong side of the road, was found with yet another person that was not his wife and found in another adulterous affair just three years later. Then his, his church questioned him, 
about why did you do this or, you know, something like that. And he says, and this is what he said. He said, the Lord told me it's flat none of your business. Friends, that is not godly character in any way. That does not meet any of the godly characteristics that we've just talked about at all. But we've become sympathetic to the saying that things like that. That ministry is still going on. That is a man that is highly unqualified for what he's doing. Highly unqualified. But God wants the church on Sunday morning and throughout the week to be pure. To live pure lives. But how do we do that? Psalm 119.9 says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Are you beginning to see the pattern of what Paul's doing here? He's saying if you want to live a life that is worthy of being imitated or a life that is worthy of being used by God, then you have to know what his word says. We have to know what his word says. Because God does not, let me just be very clear, God does not accept every form of worship. Okay? He does not accept every form of worship. You can look in the Old Testament. He gets very, very unhappy when people do not worship him in the way that he desires. Very, very unhappy. But moving on, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. It says this, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul lists these three things, that in his absence, to devote yourself to these things to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, why these things? Why these things and not, say, singing, right? We had a wonderful band up here of students that sang for us this morning that, that led us in worship. What a wonderful gift that we have to that, right? What a wonderful thing. But why not singing or, or breaking bread together or, or praying together? All of those things are great, should definitely be practiced, Probably more than what we do right now. Definitely more than what we do right now. But why doesn't he mention those three things here? Why are those not the things that he says to devote yourself to? Because really the reading of scripture, the, the exhortation, and the teaching really informs all other facets of the Christian life. Let me just put it this way. If we mess up what the word of God says, how well are we going to do all the other things that he wants us to do? We're not. If we can't even follow exactly what his word says, or at least try to understand what it says, and then carry out those things, how well are we going to sing worship on Sunday morning? How well are we going to have fellowship with one another? How well are we going to pray for one another if we've messed up what the word of God says? If really, if we have a misinformed doctrine... Nothing is going to follow. Nothing is going to follow that God really desires. He wants this good doctrine because if, if we mess up this, if we mess up the gospel and all of us in this room don't know who Christ is and we think that we can stand up here and worship and, and, and break bread together and we can pray together and that we're just good before God but we've messed up the gospel and none of us actually know him, wow, we've missed the mark. But he's, he mentions these three things, reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. This beginning with reading of Scripture, I take this to literally mean the, they're just the reading aloud of Scripture, so that could be from the sidewalk, or I think more 
seriously meant what we did this morning. Lester came up here and actually just read scripture to us. But I think the more that we know the scriptures, the more equipped we're going to be. And I think that's exactly what Paul says later, which we're going to get to in a couple months, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Pay attention. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we want to be used effectively by God, then we have to know what he says. The word of God informs every facet of Christian life. If we want to know how to live holy before God, we have to know what he says. If we want to be used effectively by God, we have to know what it says. This is the continual pattern that he's going to use. Hebrews 4.12 continues on this train of thought, really, of, of that the, the word of God is effective in our lives. It transforms our lives. It says this, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active. It is transforming people day by day, moment by moment, changing them into people more like Christ. The word of God sanctifies us by the spirit continually. And then one of my favorite verses on this idea of just the scripture itself is Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice the pattern in here. He's saying, notice what comes first, that the, that the word of God is dwelling in people richly, and out of that comes teaching, admonishing, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, if we want to do anything else in our Christian lives right, then we have to know what the word of God says. It's not, there's no excuse to not know what the word of God says and, it, and really understand the truth of God's word. It is critical to the rest of our Christian life. You know, I want to share with you a story uh, of a young man in our church, uh, Sean. Sean, why don't you raise your hand? You're somewhere over there. There's Sean. Uh, Sean is 15 years old. He just finished his freshman year of high school. Back several months ago, about five months ago, uh, I was with our discipleship group freshman boys, and I asked them, I said, guys, we should probably start memorizing some scripture. Um, and I said, why don't we just start memorizing 1 Timothy? Just to be very clear, Sean is awesome, and the rest of us are really terrible at this, so just hold on. Um, I suggested 1 Timothy, and I believe as of yesterday, today, something like that, Sean has memorized the entire book of 1 Timothy, word for word. Let me just... One left. Okay, today. Today will be the last verse of 1 Timothy, and he will have the entire book memorized. So let me just break that down for you. That's six chapters, 113 verses, and 2,317 words that Sean has memorized and kept in his heart. Okay? That's an awesome thing. That is an awesome thing that he's 15 and he's doing that. Okay? When I was 15, I was so far from that. Okay? I wasn't anywhere near that. And it's just a miracle that God has really transformed Sean's heart and has made him love the word of God. I did not pressure him into doing any of that, really. I, I maybe checked up on that every two months and said, hey, Sean, how's it going? He goes, I'm in chapter four. I was like, oh, gosh. Um, but really, knowing the scripture is good, memorizing it's awesome, but really even the much harder part than just memorizing it is living it. 
We can know all kinds of scripture, but if we don't live it out, then it's worthless to us. So we, even if you memorize it, even if you know it, you have to live it. You have to live it every single day. Next in this list of things that, that Paul wants Timothy to be devoted to is exhortation. This is really the passionate plea of the preacher or the person. It's really urging someone to do something with what they've just heard. You know, often this is contained in, in the application part of a sermon potentially, but really this happens day by day in front of us, that people should be urging us that when we read the scripture to apply it, to use it, to change our lives. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says this, says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we want to fight sin in our own lives, then we need somebody to be urging us away from it, urging us towards righteousness and away from sinfulness. The next thing he mentions is teaching. This is really the instruction of God's word. It's reaching into the scriptures, pulling out the truth, displaying the majesty to people in front of you. Dives into the, really the depths and the riches of God's word. It's a wonderful thing. There's a couple of verses I just want to, I want to show you. Acts 2.42 says this, And they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. Notice what's first, the teaching. It's the word of God. It starts there. It starts with the word of God. Colossians 1.28 says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How do we come to maturity in Christ? By knowing his word. I hope you're seeing the pattern because it is evident throughout scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 says this. Moving on, sorry. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Paul is really trying to remind Timothy of his own ordination, of this time when Timothy was, he, he was laid hands on by the church of where he was, and they basically confirmed his calling to go to the Ephesian church and be an elder there. They say, you don't forget this time. Not only has God called you to this thing, but the church approves of it, that we are, we are sure that you should go do this. Really, Paul, Paul's basically saying, you're obviously gifted. You've been confirmed by the elders. God has called you. Now go and practice the, the gifts God's calling you, called you to and that he's given you. And that's where he says it next verse in, in 1 Timothy 4.15. He says this, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So he says to practice these things. Practice what? Practice setting examples in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, and to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And with some not only to practice these things, but he wants him to immerse himself in them, be absorbed by them. That's really what that Greek word means there, is to be absorbed by them, be holy in them, make them the very fiber of your being. But it starts with knowing the word of God. It starts with knowing the word of God. But he says there that so others may see your progress. Is that really so that we can just show off? I, I, friends, Sean doesn't know 113 verses of scripture that he can show off. Don't go ask him to recite it because you'll be there for minutes, all right? But no, Sean is being transformed by that, by knowing it. Friends, he is. He is not the same kid that I met a year ago. 
He's a radically different individual. Jesus really talks about this, about letting others see the progress that you've made. It says this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 15 and 16. It says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Pay attention. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let the light shine of Christ through you to other people. Because when people notice that there's something radically different about your speech and your conduct and your faith and your purity and your love, they're going to question what is different about that person? What has transformed that person? And that's a perfect opportunity to you say, Christ has transformed me. I am no longer who I was. I am a new creation in Christ. Wow, what a testament to who God is and what he does. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, really Paul, Paul basically saying the same thing. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That Paul is imitating God, and he's saying, I'm a, a representation that you can follow. He says, I'm not perfect. However, I am worth following. I know many of us are sitting here thinking, I don't want anybody to follow me. My life looks like wretchedness. And that may be true, but that's the time when you get to evaluate your own heart and you allow the Spirit to transform you by submitting yourself to it. Let the Word of God change you. Because I think that's really what the goal is, that we want to honor Christ, we want to glorify Him, we want to live holy lives, and by so doing, we're going to allow other people to imitate us in our own lives. So what's really the end result of all this? setting examples for believers and dedicating ourselves to the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 says this. It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both your hearers, yourself and your hearers. He's not talking about really this salvific, that, that just by, by living a good life that you're going to be saved or, or by, by saying good things that you're going to be saved. It's not what he's talking about. However, he is talking about that People can see examples of that. They can imitate that. They can know Christ because of the way that you're living. I think it's really interesting. When he says, he, he begins in that verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself. That's the, that's, that's the, the speech, the conduct, the love, the faith, and the purity. And then he says, and on the teaching, which is the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation of the teaching. He wraps all of that up. He says, keep a close watch on these things. And he says, persist in these things. And I think that really this is in part reference to his letter to the Romans in chapter 10. And this is going to be in verses 8 through 17. I think this is just such a powerful piece of scripture. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have, never, they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel for isaiah says lord who has believed what he has heard from us so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ friends we get to be a part excuse me believers we get to be a part of god's broad all-encompassing plan of redemption that he has had from before eternity. Why would God use such a sinful people to carry out his will? Why not just write the gospel on the clouds or make the rocks cry out? Because God loves us and God wants us to be a part of what he's doing. But friends, if we don't know the word of Christ... We are not going to be a part of that. We have to know what the truth of the gospel is first and then also what the truth of his word is. In conclusion, if we want to grow new and mature Christians, then we must know the truth of God's word. That's not just for students. That's for adults. That's for grandparents. That's for everybody. We must know the truth of God's word. It starts with knowing his word, and then once we know it, then we must live it. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we could be together. Thank you for our students, that they could serve us, that they could be with us, that we could teach them, that they could teach us. God, I just ask that that you are present in their lives in college, in the workforce, wherever they may go, that they can know your word, that they can use it and employ it in their lives. Friends, I, I, God, I just pray for our friends here that don't know you, that you would touch their heart, that you would soften their heart to your word, that we would share the truth with them, that you would illuminate the gospel to them. God, I just ask that we can... Give us a a passion and and a fire for the word that we can know it, but also live it. God, we love you and we praise you. In name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.